rejoice of our minds that we may understand the teachings of thy gospel. And let in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that we, trembling down all carnal desires, may enter upon our spiritual manner of living both thinking and doing all those things that please thee. For thou art the source of light for our souls and bodies. O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy eternal Father, and thy all holy, good and life created spirit, both now and ever, and days of days. Amen. Trembling down uh, all our carnal desires. If you heard in a prayer, trembling down our carnal desires. And uh, this is the, the center of the Tenth Commandment. This is this is the, the center teaching of the Tenth Commandment, which by the grace of God will be finishing today. And this Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet or desire the wife of your neighbor. You shall not desire his farm, nor his servants, his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor any of his animals, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. In simple terms, you will not desire anything that belongs to your neighbor. And uh, the purpose of this commandment is to eliminate the seed of sin because when we begin to desire the things of the neighbor then eventually we will be led to do the action so as we can see here the tenth commandment comes to connect the old testament with the new testament it serves as a bridge it serves as a bridge and the Lord wants to tell us that it is not enough to avoid the action, but we must not even entertain the thought. Because, as we mentioned earlier, in earlier lessons, sin begins at the thought level. We have the evil thought, and at that point, we must play volleyball. If you remember that, that uh, Example, the minute that evil thought comes, we must, we must push it away, right away. If we don't, we're, not, we're now begin to enter in the area of sin. And from this, we see the inadequacy of human law. You know, if you call the police station tomorrow and you tell them, uh, you know, I, I have a suspicion, I think my neighbor wants to kill me. He's going to kill me. And you ask the police, do something. What are they going to tell you? We can't do anything. We cannot do anything. Wait until he does something, and then we'll act. So you're going to wait until he kills me, and then you're going to protect me? You see how inadequate human law is. Where the Lord comes to 
eliminate the evil seedling from the heart. Yes, we will go against the action, the commandments of God go against the evil action, but before we want to eliminate the possibility of this action from the beginning. Another thing that's very interesting in this commandment is the specificity that we see here. You know, the Word of God could very easily say, just stay away from the belongings of your neighbor. Don't touch anything that belongs to your neighbor. But we see this redundancy here. The Word of God says, do not covet the wife of your neighbor, do not covet his land, his farm, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What is the purpose behind this specificity? Purpose is that this commandment summarizes all the commandments. It summarizes all the commandments. When the Word of God says, when a commandment says, do not covet your neighbor's wife, it insinuates adultery. Be careful because adultery will take place if you begin to covet. And we saw this in the case of David. David the king who could have any wives he wanted. But he saw Bathsheba taking a shower. He was on a higher part of his, uh, of his complex, and he saw her bathing, and the evil desire uh, was overbearing, and he sent his servants to take her, and he sinned with her. But it didn't stop at this. Now, this coveting continued, and it led to murder. He killed her husband, Uriah. David the king, his best friend, his general. He calls him and uh, he gives him a letter, closed letter to give to someone else. And he went to attack the Philistines, I believe. The instructions in the letter was, when Uriah is up front fighting, all of you pulled back. He was killed. So when the commandment of God says, do not covet the wife of your neighbor, it says be careful because if you do this, you're on your way to adultery. When it says, do not covet the servant, the servant of your neighbor, Today, a servant would be equivalent to the executive of this other corporation. What are you going to do? If you covet that executive and you want to steal him, you're going to slander the corporation. You're going to slander the employer so you can steal the employee. So when the Word of God says, do not covet the servant of your neighbor, be careful because if you do, you'll begin to slander and lie about your neighbor. 
When a commandment says, do not covet the ox or the donkey of your neighbor, again, wants to keep you from stealing because if you covet and if you want something really bad, then stealing can take place. And when it says, do not covet the farm or the garden, we saw this in the case of Jezebel and uh, Ahab. I believe Ahab, her husband, was a king and he would have any kind of land he wanted. But he saw a piece of land of his neighbor, neighbor, and he got sick. He says, I've got to have this. I want to make a garden out of this vineyard. And he went to him and told him, please sell this to me. And Nabal says, God forbid that I would sell you the land of my fathers. And Ahab, because of his lust and his desire and his coveting, he became sick, became depressed. And Jezebel says, what's the matter? This is bothering you? Let's kill this guy and take his land. And that's what they did. So you can see here that the Lord comes to internalize these commandments. It's not enough not to kill, but also you want to eliminate the thoughts. You want to eliminate the thought inside the heart. So we can see that the Lord in the New Testament comes to internalize the old law. It's not enough just not to divorce. It's not enough to give a certificate of divorce. But anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, period. It's not enough not to kill your brother, but anybody who tells his brother, you stupid, you're fool, raka, you're in danger of hell. Because you're already in the initial stages of murder when you get angry with your brother. So St. Gregory Palamas comes to tell us, again, do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor, not his land, not, not his money, nor his glory. That's another thing. We can covet someone's position. We can covet someone's glory. And we can slander that person to take his position. So coveting takes a number of different forms. Jealousy and criticizing. When we become jealous, we begin to slander and criticize. It happened to Aaron and Miriam in the desert. They began to feel somewhat left out because uh, God was favoring Moses. And they were gossiping about their own brother. And they were talking about uh, Moses and they said, yeah, right. Is he the only prophet around here? Is he the only prophet of God? What are we? And right away, God got very, very angry and he calls all three of them. All three of you come to the tabernacle immediately. And immediately, Miriam turned as white as snow. She became a leper. They were criticizing Moses because she he married a black woman. He married an Ethiopian woman, looking down on him. 
So when we covet the glory of another person or his gifts, when we become jealous, all these things are evil seedlings that we need to eliminate. And St. Gregory Palamas says, from looking from this from the scope of the New Testament, under the light of the New Testament, says you will not, you will not have this desire because when this desire is conceived in the soul, it gives birth to sin. When this desire is born, it's conceived in a soul, it gives birth to sin. Now, what is desire in general? We spoke about this before, and we mentioned that we have the distortion of desire in the garden. From the beginning, God put this good desire in us so we can only desire him we can desire his kingdom but we because of the fall we have distorted this desire and now we desire everything else but God so desire is the satisfaction of egotism for me to gain my paradise without God and that was the sin of Adam and Eve to become gods without God. And this is, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. This is going on today. Scientists today want to make their paradise. They want to become gods. According to this article that I received yesterday from a convert, a young man called Timotheus, wrote an interesting booklet calling men father, and this is for people that are Protestants that do not understand why uh, we call our priests fathers. It does an ex excellent explanation in here, and we do have a few books that you may want to take a look at. But he sent me this article. It's quite interesting. Scientists have successfully produced an embryonic pig-human hybrid. Human DNA was inserted into pig cells, which became tiny embryos, and this took place in Australia. The researchers have not revealed what happened to these embryos, but suggest they could have been grown farther by being implanted into a womb, and that the womb could be either be of a human being, of a human mother, or of a pig. The intentions of the researchers are not made clear in an application they have submitted to the European Patent Office. Their intentions are not made clear. Well, let's guess what their intentions may be. See, people want to live forever. People that have a lot of money will buy this kind of thing. And why the 97% of the human nucleus and the 3% of the pig because whatever this thing becomes will not be human. So it's a loophole. It's against, you know, it, it goes, they can bypass the European laws of scientific ethics. So now somebody who has, I guess, a lot of money, or if they would need a heart, they can somehow breed this kind of being. And at some point, because this person is only 97% human and 3% pig, they could put this thing to death and take a heart or a liver. They knew, they knew builders of Babel. 
And you will see in the next couple weeks, when we'll be studying the book of the Revelation again, you will see that these things are prophesied. They're prophesied. What's the negative side of this? Other scientists are doing similar research. Again, in Australia, I guess uh, Australia must be a haven for this kind of research. Scientists trying to make contraceptives for mice warned they may have inadvert inadvertently created a killer virus and worried that similar techniques could produce microbes that are deadly to humans. So as you can see in the sixth seal of the book of the Revelation, the word of God says that a third of mankind will die from beasts, not tigers, lions, and bears, okay? Viruses, viruses. You see where these, these new Babylonians are leading humanity to. And this is the evil, egotistical desire. Because man wants, wants to live, but he wants to, does not want to accept Jesus Christ, the life that he has for us, the life that we can live forever. But they continue to use their demonic wisdom because wisdom that's not connected with God becomes demonic wisdom. So, in the center of desire, we have the satisfaction of egotism. Satisfaction of egotism. Now, how does desire enter every human being? It comes in either by pleasure, and that's for the body, gluttony, we desire to eat the best foods, or by fornication and the hit on uh, the pleasures. The porn industry right now is feeding on this. Billions of dollars are, are, are being spent on this evil desire. So desire comes in either as a pleasure for the body or pride for the soul. And desire is the governess of fallen men. It governs fallen men today and always. And St. James, the brother of God, the brother of God. Now, the Protestants call him the brother of the Lord. Okay. But in Greek, we say, Adelphotheos, the brother of God, just like we have no trouble saying the mother of God. St. James was possibly one of the children of Joseph from another wife, from a previous wife. So he is the brother of Christ, and Christ is God. So we call him Adelphotheos. So the brother of God, says, do not say that God is tempting you. When you are being tempted, do not say that God is tempting you. But each one is tempted by his own desire. So if we are tempted by something, the desire is inside of us. It took root inside of us. Do not say that God is tempting you. Desire is like an evil seed. It conceives and it gives birth to sin. And sin, 
when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death, spiritual and sometimes physical as well. <clears throat> one time, uh, one of our great theologi theologians of Greece, Panagopoulos, was visiting one of our saints, and I mean saints because uh, he just passed away a few years ago, Father Porfirios, who had extreme gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, he could, he could see between here and the end of the world, and a phone call would ring, and he would be able to say, this one is from Australia, and this one is from Africa. Okay, and there's many, many books that have been written on Father Porfirios, and he could also tell you exactly where to dig for water, you know, and people would use him for that. He was just uh, very, very charismatic. So this theologian, Sotiropoulos, was sitting there, and he saw two, three young ladies speaking to him, and they were not modestly dressed. They had probably shorts on, and they were very, very skimpily dressed. And he was waiting all this time. Uh, so the elder was waiting, thinking, just waiting, to, uh, you know, the elder is going to let you have it. I know that before you leave, you're going to hear about the way you dressed. The elder said nothing at all. But he continued to advise these young ladies, and uh, uh, at the end, he spoke to Mr. Sotirobos, says, uh, you're a little upset because I didn't reprimand him, aren't you? He says, well, what I'm trying to do is put Christ in their heart first, and then everything else will change. But then he also tells him, and let me tell you something. Uh, you might be tempted from this, but I'm not, because I don't see anything. I don't see any. I, he was at, at the stage where he couldn't see male or female, and not only happens when a person, and there's not too many of these people, we have to be realistic, that actually reach the state of apathia in Greek, this, the state of dispassion, where they totally, <clears throat> totally eradicate the passions. And believe it or not, this is, this is the struggle for all of us to begin to eradicate this evil desire. Little by little, it is not impossible. It is not impo impossible. This is not only for monks and priests and uh, and people that are out in the in the desert. Saint Gregory Palamas actually thought about this because at the time of Saint Gregory Palamas, there was a monk by the name of Job that was insisting that this uh, continuous prayer and uh, this state of dispassion. It's only for monks. You know, lay people cannot really achieve this. And St. Gregory Palamas uh, was totally against this kind of thought, and he prayed very, very hard, and God himself revealed to monk Job that St. Gregory is correct. Even in the city, we can exercise this quietitude, and we can exercise the prayer of the heart, and we can exercise to eliminate these desires. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. It's not just out in the desert. The gospel is the same. It's the same for monks, the same for priests, the same for lay people. We need to have the desire for godly things and everything is possible. <clears throat> it 
In the epistle of John, we read, do not love the world or anything in the world. What does that mean? Aren't we supposed to love the people in the world? Of course. So what is the meaning of this verse, do not love the world? Here, St. Isaac the Syrian says that the, this word world uh, means all the passions, the collection of all the passions. With one word, we call it world. The sins of the world. So St. John the theologian says, do not love the world or anything in the world and anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world centers around three things. <clears throat> the cravings of the flesh. And we can see that today. The cravings of the flesh. Most people are carnal. We are carnal today. We spend a lot of time on our flesh, on our materialism, on our passions, but very little time on our spirituality. So we have the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the desire of the eyes, and the arrogance of the lifestyle. How to show off, how to own a lot of things so we can show them off, and how to make a name for ourselves. These three are the very weapons of desire. And we're being fought by these three constantly. And this is what we're called as Orthodox Christians to fight against. But now, what gives birth to desire in general? In general, we said that the fallen human nature, every human being that's born, take a child that's a year old, two years old, another child comes in the room, and if it doesn't get the, uh, the, the proper attention, it immediately turns yellow, immediately. So a lot of these passions are somehow born in us. It's the fallen nature of Adam. <clears throat> so generally, the fallen human nature endows us with a number of desires that we need to take our lifetime to fight. Now, Something that gives birth to desire, initially, is peer pressure for young people. Peer pressure. You see that young kids have very, very long hair, and immediately see our kids begin to wear their hair very long. Or they have earrings, or wear earrings. It's peer pressure. It's this, it's this tendency of the human nature to want to belong. It shows that we have common ancestry. We're all uh, children of the same father, Adam. So we have peer pressure, the desire to belong. And this produces the desire for all these different styles. 
We also have an opposite type of desire. The first one was to belong, and now we have an opposite one, the desire of exclusivity. I want to have something, but I don't want anybody else to have it. I want to be the only one, and women, women sometimes, I don't know about today's women, but uh, they used to have this. If they had a recipe, they wanted to be known for the best cheesecake. So they would guard this recipe with their life. Okay. But they would not give some of their recipes around. Uh, but this also takes ethnic dimensions as well. This was the desire, this evil desire of the Jews that caused them to become alienated from the Messiah. They could not believe that the Messiah was for everybody else. They thought that the Messiah was only for themselves. In Greek, this is called zelotipia. I want something only for myself, and I don't care about anybody else. I want it to be exclusively mine. And this is an evil desire. In Greek mythology, we had the myth of Vedalos and Icarus. If you remember the two great Greek architects, I don't know if the king was Mino, I don't know, one of the kings hired these two greats, was it Mino, the, uh, the king, to build, to build uh, this great castle, the labyrinth, I believe, one of the, the Minotaur, okay. But he had this desire of Zelotipia this possessiveness and he did not want to share this art of work with anybody else so he he held these two people father and son I take it he held them captives because they were great architects they were able to design wings so they designed wings made out of wax and they began to fly but the younger one who was not too bright, he flew too close to the sun. And the sun melted the wings, and he fell in the Sea of Icaria, and that's why that sea is called the Icario Pelagos today. So as you can see, you know, this feeling of possessiveness is very, very old. But again, to this day, the Jews cannot accept the fact that the Messiah could possibly be for everyone. We saw this in the older prodigal son. He became very jealous when he saw that the younger brother came back. And now, he was going to be in the same home again. Before, he had it all. He had it all. He had the father's attention. He was the single heir to the throne. But now, this loser is back this loser and he refused to enter the house the older brother is in the typology of the Jews the older brother again typifies the Jews they did not want the younger brothers the nations to come to God again this jealousy but their time will come because the last people that will believe will be the Jews. The last people. And that will be a sign of the end of the times. 
the last, not all of them, but the last people that become that will become Orthodox Christians by the droves will be the Jews. They will accept the Messiah. And this is prophesied in Malachi when it says that Elijah will come back again and he will unite the children with their fathers, the children of the nations, the idolaters, us. And the fathers are the Jews who gave us the true religion, but then they left it. Another cause of greed is pleonexia, a Greek word that we cannot interpret very well. We'll use a few words too. Pleonexia, the desire to have a lot of things. I have two cars, but that's not enough. I want three. I want four and five. The more, the better. This evil desire of consumerism to want things not because I need them, but because I want them, because I feel that having these things will guarantee my happiness. The Jews were not satisfied with manna. And we need to remember this after a month or so or two. And not all the Jews, uh, the scripture says in Numbers, it says that the mixed multitude, the mixed multitude of the Jews, and the church fathers interpret that along with the people, the Jews that left Egypt, a number of Egyptians left as well. They were uh, disenchanted with politics there. They were disenchanted with the Pharaoh. And along with the Jews, a number of, of Egyptians left as well. So this mixed multitude, after about a month or so or two, they began to despise manna. And why is that? Because they were not spiritual. They were not spiritual. They saw manna for what it was. This bread, this uh, cakes, these flat cakes that we have to eat every morning. And they sat in a corner and they began to desire the leeks and the onions and the garlic and the fish of Egypt. And they were literally crying and begging and harassing Moses and telling him, now you brought us here. Who's going to give us fish? Who's going to give us all these fruits that we had in plenty of quantity in Egypt? Manna every day. According to the wisdom of Solomon, one of the books of the Apocrypha, manna, of course, was a physical food, but it was also very, very spiritual. People that were grateful to God, and they were spiritual people, this manna would take the form, it would take the taste of anything that they desire. If they want a prime rib, if they want a prime rib, this manna would taste like prime rib. If they wanted the uh, taste of grapes, this manna would taste like grapes. Solomon tells this in his wisdom, in the book of wisdom of Solomon, that you, a great Lord, made the manna a according to the taste of each one of its recipients. But again, this for the spiritual people, 
So the people that were grumbling and the people that were non-spiritual and that were just going along for the ride, this tasted, this tasted very, very boring. And after a while, they began to loathe this thing. And they start crying out to Moses, we want meat. And Moses cried out to God and he says, what am I supposed to do? Find flocks here in the desert? What am I going to do? How am I going to fish for you for over a million people? And God says, tell these people that in a few days, tomorrow, I'm going to give them meat. I'm going to give them meat. But I'm going to give them so much meat that it'll come out of their nose. It'll come out of their nostrils. They'll eat meat for 30 days and it will come out of their nostrils. And the next day, the great God called out the quail of the universe, of the earth. And flocks of quail begin to pour into the camp from everywhere. The quail was so high, it was three feet high. The quail was like dizzy. And the Jews would go and just grab them and fill baskets upon baskets with them. And they began to eat and eat and eat. And if there was not enough, now they began to pasteurize this. But how? They didn't have refrigerators in the desert. So they probably used a little bit of salt that they found in the sea. But this method was not very, very good. So the quail became spoiled. They ate it. And cholera struck the camp. And thousands of them died. And they buried them. And they named the tombs, the tombs of desire, the tombs of desire. Times today, as we said before, our desires put more of us six feet under than World War I and II put together. Drinking and driving, the desire to get high, the desire to do drugs, to find paradise. So an interesting billboard, you know, they had an empty coffin. And it's correct. It says that if you drink and drive, this box is waiting for you. And desire in general, evil desire, kills. So the evil desire for gold, for illicit sex, for glory, and for power is a grave illness that pushes someone to the earthly grave, but also to the eternal grave as well. And this eternal grave is called hell. <clears throat> so the evil desire, the beginning again of this evil desire is to become God. We see our scientists today but they want to become gods without God. They want to go to space. They're looking for they're looking for aliens, for people out there, because they have not believed in Jesus Christ. They have not believed. So man wants to become God all by himself once again. And we mentioned about the exploitation of atheistic science, the builder, the builders of new Babel. So St. Gregory Palamas says that you will eliminate 
this evil desire and you will not grab the things that belong to other people but you should rather take from the things that belong to you and give to them in other words if you want to fight greed the way you fight it is by almsgiving as we said every week every month whatever is in your heart you take a portion and you put it aside and this is how you fight greed this doesn't belong to you it belongs to God and that's it and it also, he also says that do not refuse to loan someone something if, he, if he's asking for a small loan go ahead and give it to him the brother comes and says listen I need something give it to him but we mentioned last week we explained this we will not subsidize someone's business we will not loan people money to go into business we will loan them enough if they need to live for a week a day or two and let's not expect this money back we should give it if we can do if we can do uh, without it and if we absolutely need to have this money tomorrow for another purpose, obviously we cannot, we can give something little, but we have to use our discretion. If you find something that's lost, take it back to its owner. In the Old Testament, there was a law in Deuteronomy. If you find the lost ox or the animal or the donkey of your enemy you must take it back to him even though he or she is your enemy see the wisdom of God here if you find something that belongs to your enemy the person that you are uh, disagreement with after you take this thing back is he going to continue to be your enemy no I don't care how calloused he is he's going to say Gee, thank you. Even if it's just a cold thank you, it's a start. It's a start. So if you find something that belongs to your enemy, give it back to them. If you find something that's lost, try to find its owner. How about if, if we find some money on the street? <laughs> Keep it. Does it belong to you? How do you know that that person that lost it will not come back 15 minutes later and look for that and he will not be there? Actually leave it there because someone else may need it more than you. It's best to leave it there. It doesn't belong to you. And this is how you fight desire. St. Anthony while walking in the desert. St. Anthony the Great. And that's why he's the Great. The devil put a big, a big silver tray of gold, gold nuggets, right on his way. Gold nuggets. St. Anthony continued, looked at that thing like it was stone, like, like it was coal. Just kept walking. And of course it disappeared. It was a trap of the devil. Trapping. Years ago, Years ago, I was in Greece, and we have to say some good things to some good people out there in the world. About a week ago, I was in Lancaster, and I was in a hurry, so my cell phone 
fell outside of my car and I closed the door and I, and I had no idea that it was missing. I thought I left it on the seat and about half an hour later after I came out of the store, I found the cell phone actually hanging from my door. Someone, some good soul saw it and they put it there. Okay. So Alex doesn't have to buy me another one. <clears throat> years ago, and I, I really, this is like a miracle, about 20 years ago I was in Greece and uh, right after college, and I was on a moped, and I was on the island, of course, and going up the mountains, had my wallet on my back, on the back pocket, and uh, it fell out about seven to 10 miles away from the city. After I came back to the city, I looked for my wallet, my cards were in it, my license, everything. Not a lot of money, maybe $40, $50, whatever. Uh, I went to the police and I said I lost you know my license if somebody finds it you know this is my address but guess what I was walking on the port and a soldier stopped me and he goes is your name Constantine I said yes but I don't know you he says I know you I saw your picture on your license, and here's your wallet. Actually, I did say it right. Your wallet is at the police station. Go get it. He saw my picture, and he was able to remember my face. And I, uh, it was it was really amazing, you know, that they're good people out there as well. Thank God. Yes, yes, <clears throat> and I did offer him a reward. He would not accept it. He would not accept it. He was probably one of the students of Father Athanasius Mithilineos in Larissa. <laughs> <laughs> now we talked about evil desire. We talked about evil desire, but we also have holy desire. And we need to work on this holy desire. And St. Paul teaches us this when he says that I don't desire anything but Christ. I have no desire for anything else but Christ. He says, I consider everything in the world to be rubbish, rubbish, so I can possess Christ. Christ is my only desire, my only treasure, according to St. Paul. Christ is the hidden treasure. The reason why we study these commandments, as St. Gregory Palama says, that if we study these commandments, God will give us, he will give us his blessings, his agatha. And when we study the commandments of God, they are full of gold. The commandments of God are more precious than gold. Then we can desire to possess Christ. And this is the goal. This is why we do these lessons, to possess Christ. Because if we do that, then we have it all. We have everything. Christ said this in the, in the, in the parables, actually in the parable of the hidden treasure. Someone found a hidden treasure 
you know, a piece of land, a piece of ground, and he did what? He went and he sold everything that he possessed. He sold everything so he can gain this hidden treasure. So he bought that field, and the hidden treasure in that field is Christ. And this is what we need to do. We need to sell our passions, sell them, give them away, get rid of them, one by one, one day at a time, so we can possess Christ. Christ is also the precious pearl. Someone found the biggest and most precious pearl, and he went and sold everything else to buy this precious pearl. Today we speak of values, we speak of commodities, we speak of investments, we speak of ethics. See, ethics, ethics are not enough. Ethics simply teach us how to live good on this earth. These values, we talk about values today, and we focus on these values. We need Christ. We need Christ. The Alpha and the Omega of the holy desire is Christ himself. The Ten Commandments of Christ, which are summarized by the Tenth Commandment, do not covet anything in this world, anything in this world. And we need to consider everything to be rubbish. The Ten Commandment of Christ, which says do not covet, it actually tells us to desire only one thing, Christ himself, and then we'll have it all. Next week we will continue with our studies of the book of the Revelation. At this point, if we have any questions on the Ten Commandments in general or about this commandment, and once again, as we mentioned before, we do not exhaust these commandments. Each commandment could take hours upon hours of teaching, but we simply touch on some of these things to energize our faith, to put us on course so we can begin to ascend on a daily basis. We need to ascend because, as we said before, the gospel is the same. We don't have two stairways to heaven. There's only one stairway. The same stairway for monks, the same stairway for priests, the same stairway for us. We all take the same ladder. Just that maybe the people in the desert and the monks, they have given it 100%. So they might be a few steps ahead of us but they are on the same stairway, the only stairway to heaven, to orthodox ascesis and spirituality. And we should feel guilty if we want to have a nice home, a car, fine clothes, we have to live in a cave, drive a bicycle perhaps. Where do you draw the line? Or a $100,000 car. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a difficult, you know, it's, it's a hard question. Um, how you draw the line? I believe when the time comes, you'll know. And, and these, are not, these are not things that can be taught. We don't, we don't tell, you know, we have freedom in Christ, and this is a beautiful thing. We are, we are 
freeing Christ. We see some of our great spiritual fathers, you know, Father Ephraim and some of the other fathers and Father Athanasios, they never tell anybody, listen, your house is too big, go, go sell your home. Um, I, I, believe, I believe the issue here is how much attached, how much of an attachment do you have on this home and how much effort are you giving to own this home? This is the question. Are you working Sunday so you can own this home? Are you neglecting your children so you can own this car? Are you neglecting your husband and your wife? Are you neglecting the commandments of God? This is the question. And uh, I don't believe it's the size. It's sometimes. You know, if we have, uh, we have an occupation, and we have very, very rich people in Byzantium as well, even though it is very, very difficult, as we mentioned before, wealth becomes a temptation. It brings along a great deal of temptations. I don't know if it was in last week's lesson or the week before, but we mentioned that Abraham was very, very wealthy, but he lived in tents. Uh, I believe if you can attend church, if you have your time of prayer, if you're giving the time to your family, at the same time, you have, if you have been blessed with, uh, you know, with a good occupation, then these are God's blessings as well. It's not to abuse these and not to become attached. However, it's not a virtue to have a great big house. We have to say that as well. God is not going to give us an A or a B or a C because we live in a 20-room house or a 10 or a 5 or we have 10 apartments or 5. Okay? In the kingdom of God, they will not help us at all. They will not help us at all. However, poverty is a virtue. Poverty is a virtue. In what sense, though? Not poverty out of laziness not powering out of drunkenness and gambling. Okay. When I decide because the Spirit of God somehow puts it in my heart, I choose to make less money to spend more time working the gospel. I choose to have a smaller house or to have very little so I can devote my time to spiritual pilgrimages to visit the monasteries, to go in different places. So I choose to do it less so I can have more spiritual things. Hopefully that helps a little bit.